morning again. Sometimes uh, when Eric asks me to fill in for him, I've got an idea for a sermon I've been thinking on for a while, and sometimes I don't. And this was one of those times like the latter. I really didn't have an idea for a sermon. I, I knew what date I had to deliver the sermon, but that was about it. But, you know, fortunately, when you look around, there's actually sermon topics all around you every day if you just take the time to notice them. Sometimes they come from unlikely places. So before I jump into today's topic, though, I am going to warn you that I think that this topic can be a bit hard to listen to. You know, and hopefully not because of my delivery, but hopefully the topic may be a little bit hard to listen to. And if you do find the sermon upsetting, I sincerely do apologize for that in advance. I don't intend to upset anybody. What I intend to do is urge action. Nothing more than that. I don't want to make anybody feel bad for anything that can't be changed. And I'll offer you this in exchange, though. I do think that perhaps... This sermon may be one of everybody's favorite types of sermons, and that might be a short one, maybe. So you hopefully won't have to listen to me too long. If you're a uh, country music fan, and you listen to current hits, you've almost certainly heard a popular song that's on the radio right now by an artist by the name of Cody Johnson. And the name of the song is Till You Can't. And if you're familiar with that, you can probably guess the gist of the rest of my sermon at this point. I think it's a pretty powerful song. Uh, the theme is that you can put anything off that you want to put off. You can put off everything, but then at some point you can't put things off. And even if you don't know the song, it doesn't take too much imagination to guess what that song is about. The reality of this world is that every single one of us has a finite time here. That's, that's all there is to it. And any interactions that you want to have with anybody else on this earth, friends, family members, distant relatives, whoever it may be, if you put those interactions off for too long, well, there'll come a time where it's too late to have those interactions, whatever those may be. And this can be really hard to think about, and I understand that, and that's why I said what I said at the beginning. And it's hard to think about looking both to the future as well as to the past. And with that idea as a backdrop, I want to take a look at some scriptures. Uh, and I think these scriptures in some way fit with the theme, and I want to glean a few points from these scriptures. We're going to be looking at, I think, four different passages today. And uh, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 16 if you want. Uh, we'll be starting there. And uh, there is a sort of a fifth one that fits in, and that's the passage Keith read for us this morning. Um, I'm not going to discuss that one further, but I think that one also fit with the theme. So let's turn to uh, Luke 16, and let's look at the text about the rich man and Lazarus, which starts in uh, verse 19. Okay, this, this uh, passage says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. There's quite a bit to unpack in that, uh, in that short account there. Certainly, I think there's an allusion to uh, Jesus' resurrection at the end of the uh, passage there, but let's, um, let's focus on the earlier parts of that text. Do you think that it's fair to say that that rich man had some regrets? Most obvious is uh, his regrettable condition. He is keenly aware of that. Clearly, he's suffering greatly, and he wants some help for that. How many times do you think he could have interacted with Lazarus while he was on this earth? We don't really know if he did anything in life to help Lazarus or not. It seems likely that he probably didn't do much anyway. Certainly he did recognize Lazarus, though, so he must have had some sort of interaction, or at least an awareness. Maybe they even talked prior to uh, each of their passing. Now, all that he wants is just, just the smallest amount of water on his tongue. It's just not possible. The rich man in the story, he's missed his opportunity to avoid eternal suffering. It's too late for him. There's nothing that can be done. He could have changed his destiny, perhaps even right up to the moment of his death, or right up until suddenly he couldn't. Once he understands that, that's once he understands the the eternalness of his current situation, his thoughts seem to turn. Though, uh, perhaps he can help his family avoid the same fate. But again, he, he can't. Not only can he no longer influence his family in a good direction, Abraham tells him essentially his family's going to make their own choices, and I mean, it seems as if they're not on a good path and they're destined for a similar fate. I mean, it's, it's really a sad scene. He missed his chance to change. So let's turn a little further in, uh, in Scripture. Let's go to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 5. This uh, chapter ends, or begins with a, uh, an account of Ananias and Sapphira, which we probably all know that passage pretty well as well. But how does this one connect to our theme? So let's start reading in Acts 5.1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the, Holy, or the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young, man, young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. There's uh, certainly some decisive moments in this story, aren't there? Aren't there some moments where it suddenly became too late for people to correct poor judgment? We could talk about the poor choices this couple made. We could speculate about their motivation. Um, There's a lot in this brief account as well. But to keep with our theme, let's just look at Ananias and his role in this. As the husband, did he not have the responsibility to set the moral standard for his household? Were there opportunities that he had to spare his wife from the fate that she met? I think you'd have to say absolutely there were. Well, for starters, he could have just been honest. It would have been pretty easy, right? As Peter points out, the money belonged to them. They, they could have done whatever they wished with it. But instead, though, he chose a path of dishonesty. And then by the time he realized what the price for that choice would be, I'm sure he would have liked to have warned his wife. But it became impossible very suddenly, very quickly. By the time he realized the gravity of his situation, the opportunity to help his wife was gone. He could have most likely saved his wife until he couldn't. So these are a couple of accounts which drive home the seriousness of living every moment right. I've tried to tie those into my theme, and hopefully you get my point from this, but Scripture includes a parable that illustrates my theme quite well. If you would, please turn to Matthew 25. And let's look at the parable of the ten virgins in verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, or our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. 
<clears throat> but while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the hour or the day or the hour. Well, I think this parable is primarily about always being ready for the master's return. I want to draw your attention specifically to verse 10. It is true that the uh, five foolish ladies did not adequately prepare for this event. But verses 10 and 11 show that a time came after which they simply were not able to enter the wedding banquet. Do you think that as they went through this scenario, they realized the, the time was of the essence for them? Do you think that they fully appreciated that they were racing the clock when they went to get that oil? My point is that a time came at which it was simply too late for them to gain access to the feast. They were shut out. They could have prepared. And they would have still been okay until suddenly they couldn't. Time ran out for them. That's all there was to it. For my final example, I want to go back to the Old Testament. I want to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look in Genesis 18 towards the end, you'll find Abraham negotiating with God. In that passage, he's trying to save Sodom from destruction. Perhaps there was a time that Abraham could have actually saved Sodom. Perhaps he could have warned them of the dangers of their evil ways. Clearly, Abraham cared somewhat about some of the people there. It seemed like he was in a bit of denial, though. He starts his negotiations hoping for 50 righteous people to be found. Given how he keeps walking that number down, though, perhaps Abraham knew how bad it really was there. So let's look at that passage. If you will, read with me Genesis 18. We'll start in verse 22. The men turned away and went to Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy, destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found, found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. When the text continues in the next chapter, it's moved on to the angels arriving in Sodom and meeting with Lot. What do you think was in Abraham's mind as he returned home at the end of chapter 18? Do you think he had do you think he thought he had successfully negotiated the, the salvation of Sodom? Or do you think maybe he knew there weren't really even 10 righteous people there? Could Abraham have changed things at some point in the past? Could Lot have somehow impacted that city for good? By the time the urgency of the situation was recognized, though, it was too late. God's mind, it was made up. Perhaps Abraham or Lot could have somehow made a difference at some point. Maybe. We don't know. But we do know that any such opportunity was passed by the time they realized it. So this brings me to my conclusion today. This was a very, very simple message, but I think it's an important one. Are there things that you know that you should be doing, things you know you should be taking care of, but you put them off? And, you know, I don't mean chores and errands and things like that, but I mean spiritual things. Are there people you need to talk to? Maybe there's changes in your own life you need to make. Do you have a right relationship with God? Or maybe you know some people who plan to come back to church someday. And they think they have plenty of time for someday. Maybe you know people who plan on getting right with God when they get older. How long do you think each of them have to get older? How long do you have left to have difficult conversations with some of these people? Ten years? Five years? Six months? Six weeks? A week? An hour? Like that country song I referenced said, you know, you can put it off until you can't. Maybe there's conversations you need to have. Maybe it will make a difference for someone. Maybe it won't. There's no way to know unless you try. But I do know with 100% confidence is that if you've been putting off getting your life right with God, don't put off fixing that. If you're still clothed in sins, that's something that you can fix even today by being buried in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of those sins. If that's the situation you're in, don't wait any longer. And if that's something you need to do, come forward now as we stand and as we sing.